Scripture reading comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She, took the, she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant women, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then the sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the, daughter, so the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. The grass withers and flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, good morning. Welcome to Exilic. My name is David. I'm a pastoral resident at the church. My, wife's, my wife Mifeng's family has been fleeing oppression for generations. Her grandparents grew up in China, but during the rise of communism, they fled to Vietnam for refuge. But then the Vietnam War began, and so her parents eventually moved to the U.S. or came to the U.S. actually as refugees. The birth of Moses is a story about deliverance from oppression. Maybe when you hear this story, you feel an instant connection to it. But maybe you're more like me. I grew up in a suburb of Chicago, and I never really had to worry about you know, food, money, my safety, or being harassed. Maybe you haven't experienced this kind of oppression, and you don't feel an instant connection to this story. But here's the thing. We all need deliverance. We live in a world full of injustice that needs deliverance. And we all need deliverance ourselves, even if not external deliverance, we need deliverance from our jealousy, from our, our need to please others, from anger, lust, whatever, these things that we just can't quite seem to get free from. And there's another thing that's universal. We all need deliverance from death. You might not know this, but about this time six years ago, Google started a company named Calico with the goal of solving death. Tad Friend, in a New Yorker article entitled Silicon Valley's Quest to Live Forever, writes this about the founder of Calico. He says, Maris, who is 42, is a longtime vegetarian who works out on an elliptical machine for an hour every day. He comforts himself with the knowledge that the scientists who performed a 3D scan of his brain praised his robust corpus callosum, the bundle of nerve fibers that connects the hemispheres. But such precautions and advantages were temporary, personal stopgaps. How could he fix the problem permanently and for everyone? He decided to build a company that would solve death. And guess how much Google invested in this company? 
$1 billion. The uh, uh, September 2013 cover of the Time Magazine read, can Google solve death? You know, much of our life is spent delaying death. We eat healthy, we exercise, we go to the doctor, we get screened for cancer, we invest a billion dollars into solving death. But no matter what we do, no matter what medical advances we make, no matter what we believe about life after death, no matter how much money or power we have, we still can't save ourselves from death. Friend writes in that same New Yorker article, for us, aging is the creeping and then catastrophic dysfunction of everything all at once. Our mitochondria sputter, our endocrine system sags, our DNA snaps, our sight and hearing and strength diminish, our arteries clog, our brains fog, and we falter, seize, and fail. Every research breakthrough, every announcement of a master key that we can turn to reverse all that has been followed by setbacks and confusion. There's an ancient prayer that says, what man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Whether you're a farmer in uh, China during the rise of communism or uh, an executive in Silicon Valley in 2019, we all need deliverance. Calico has a vision to solve death through medicine and technology, but Christianity claims to already have the solution. In fact, the story we're looking at this morning is from about 3,500 years ago, and it claims to point us towards the one who already has solved death. So let's take a look at this story. We'll, we'll walk through it together and see what it has to say to us today. And first, we need to look at some of the context. So we started reading in chapter 2, but let me just bring you up to speed of what happened in chapter 1 of Exodus. So Israel was living in Egypt. We're told they went there as only 70 people, but they were multiplying at an incredible rate. And this intimidated the Pharaoh, so he made them his slaves. But then we read this. The more they were oppressed, this is the Israelites, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So Pharaoh takes an even more drastic step. He tells the Hebrew, the Hebrew midwives to kill every son born of the Israelites. Imagine what that would be like for a second. Imagine you're living in a foreign land, you're so oppressed by the ruler that you're made his slaves, and then he actually commands your midwives to kill every son born of your people. That's an extreme situation. Now, what if in the midst of this, you found out that you were having a child? What would you be thinking? What would you be feeling? You know, I'd probably be terrified and praying to God that my child wouldn't be a son. But to the relief of the Israelites, the midwives, were, we, we feared God and didn't do what Pharaoh commanded. And so we read again, the people multiplied and grew very strong. But when Pharaoh sees his first two plans haven't worked, he just gets all the more drastic. In the last verse of Exodus 1, we read this. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, so now not just the Hebrew midwives, all his people, and he said, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile. 
And then we read, the woman conceived and bore a son. The story narrows to one son of Israel, and we ask, what will happen to the son? So we read on in verse 2, and we see, when the woman saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. So this, uh, this phrase here is a Hebrew idiom that means to be fond of or, or to care about or to want. But it's also the same phrase that's used in the book of Genesis after some of the days of creation. So like for example, we read in Genesis, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. The same phrase, that it was good, is what's used in this verse. When she saw him, that he was good, she hid him three months. This language is meant to remind us of creation, to heighten our senses, to see if maybe this isn't just any son of Israel. Maybe in the birth of this son, God is giving birth to something new for his people. The woman is able to hide the child for three months, which may have been longer than she expected to be able to. I mean, if you've held a newborn baby before, you know that newborn babies cry. It would have been hard to hide him. You know, if I were her, I'd be wondering every day if, if this would be the day that my, my son was found, torn from my arms, and cast into the Nile. But eventually we read, she could hide him no longer. She had to come up with a new plan. And so take a look at verse 3. She took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. The word basket here is not what we may think of as a traditional basket. It's not like a flimsy picnic basket to take to Central Park or like the wicker basket that my wife and I use to hold blankets. It's probably better to translate this as chest or ark. In fact, the only other place that this word is used in the Old Testament is with the ark that Noah built to protect his family and the animals from the flood. So this word is meant to make us even more curious about this son. Maybe like Noah, God will protect the son in an ark and bring about a new era for his people, an end to evil. We might say a new creation. There's irony in this verse too. It's less clear in the English translations, but the word translated as river in verse three is the same word that's used in uh, chapter one, verse 22. So there Pharaoh commanded his people to cast the sons into the Nile. But here the woman places, so not cast, but a gentler places the ark on the bank of the Nile. So in a way, she obeys the command of Pharaoh, just not in the way that he intended. There's a poetic justice here. And maybe you've found yourself in a similar situation before. You know, maybe like the woman you've been asked or, or told by those in authority over you to do something that goes against what God commands. If that hasn't happened to you, there's a good chance that it will one day. You know, maybe your boss tells you to lie to a client or to be misleading. Maybe your boss wants you to join them in gossip or demeaning humor or sexist remarks. Maybe you feel pressure to go out and get wasted on Friday nights with your coworkers. Maybe like my wife, you work in the medical field and there are just a host of ethical issues to navigate. What will you do? You know, for Christians, this is really a matter of faith. 
It's not just about mustering up some courage. It's actually about fearing God more than man. That's what we're told in in Exodus 1. The midwives didn't obey Pharaoh because they feared God more. See, we can do what's right in the face of adversity because we have faith that one day God will bring justice. He will vindicate those who are wronged. God won't let evil have the last say, but there may be times when you feel helpless. Look at the helplessness in verse 4. It says, And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. The woman could hide him no longer, and all the sister could do was stand at a distance to wait to see what would happen to the son. The tension builds even more in verse 5. Look at this. It says, Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds, uh, the reeds and she sent her servant woman and she took it. What a contrast from the son. Do you notice that? So take a look at this. In, in this part of the story, the daughter of Pharaoh has, has all the freedom and power. The son is helpless and hidden in the reeds of the Nile, while the daughter of Pharaoh is is free and comes to the Nile not out of fear, not for protection, but for a luxurious bath. There's a contrast with the mother here, too. When the child's mother saw him, she hid him. When Pharaoh's daughter saw the ark, she sent her servant woman to take it. And this is the climax of the story. What will happen to the son? Will the echoes of Noah and of creation come to a fulfillment or will the child be cast back into the Nile from which he came? Look at verse six. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. He'd escaped being killed at birth. His mother was able to hide him for three months. But now here he is crying in the hands of the daughter of Pharaoh. What will happen to the son? We read next. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. She took pity on him. And when the sister sees it, she goes to speak to the daughter of Pharaoh. Can you imagine how intimidating that must have been? I mean, I'd be intimidated just to speak to, you know, Mayor de Blasio, but this is the daughter of Pharaoh, the autocrat of the whole country who commanded the Egyptians to kill the very child whom she held. But like the midwives and like her mother, the sister fears God more than the Egyptians. So look at verse seven. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Imagine what must have been going through her head now. I mean, you know, nowadays when I get good news, I probably just text my family. I bet the sister ran as fast as she could to tell her mom the good news. You know, not only is the son saved, but his own mother is able to nurse him. In fact, we read in verse 9 that Pharaoh's daughter even pays the woman to nurse the child. 
You might know that uh, there's a labor law in the U.S. called the Family and Medical Leave Act. Uh, it requires many employers to grant a minimum of 12 weeks of uh, unpaid, or you know, some people get paid leave, uh, to mothers who just gave birth. But in ancient times, children were nursed for three to four years. And that whole time, his mother is able to um, care for and to raise him. The child is finally back and safe in the arms of his mother. But it actually gets even better than that. The resolution is in verse 10. Look at this. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him up out of the water. You know, even in a democratic society like we live in today, it still helps to have money and connections. Yeah, for example, if you wanted to send your kid to Trinity Private School in New York City, it would cost you over $50,000 a year. Even more so, in ancient Egypt, being a part of the royal family gave you considerable advantage. So look at the reversal in this verse. Before the woman hid the child in fear, now she is able to freely bring him to the house of Pharaoh. Not only did the, the child grow up as a son of Israel, he became a son of Egypt. The son who should have been killed becomes a grandson to the very man who sought his life and he's raised with all the benefits of a royal upbringing. His adoptive mother came down to bathe in the Nile, the daughter of Pharaoh. She came up, the mother of Moses. But little did she know what would come of that day. The name Moses sounds like the word for draw up. And so she named, um, she named him Moses because she drew him up out of the water. But little did she know that Moses would grow up and one day draw up the Israelites out of the land of Egypt. You know, throughout the story, it seems like Pharaoh's daughter is the one with all the freedom and the power, but that would soon be reversed. God was not distant from the cries of his people. He saw their slavery, he saw their oppression, he saw their hardship, and he acted. He protected Moses, and in the next chapter of Exodus, he calls Moses to deliver his people out of Egypt. Here's the principle in the story. This is what we're meant to take from it. God protects his deliverer. He protects his deliverer and brings deliverance. Instead of being cast into the Nile, Moses is placed gently beside the Nile. The daughter of Pharaoh draws him up out of the Nile. And when a later Pharaoh refuses to let the Israelites leave Egypt, God turns the Nile to blood. See, Pharaoh commanded the, his people to fill the Nile with the blood of newborn Israelites. But God protected his deliverer and fills the Nile or turns the Nile to blood as a plague against the Egyptians. Pharaoh sought deliverance in the Nile, but God brought deliverance through the Nile. Instead of the Nile being a place of deliverance for Egypt and judgment for Israel, the Nile becomes a place of deliverance for Israel and judgment for Egypt. God completely reverses the intentions of Pharaoh. That's what our God does. You know, when we see injustice in our own lives or, or in the world, we can have faith that 
in the end, God will turn that evil upside down and use it for his purposes. God protects Moses, and Moses leads his people out of slavery in Egypt. And yet, as incredible and as significant as that was, it wasn't enough. Now, what about that ancient prayer from earlier? What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Moses himself prayed, the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. We tend to focus on external problems. You know, we're frustrated by something at work, and we blame our boss or our coworkers. Our relationship with our spouse or our partner is strained, and it must be their fault. We blame other people for what they did to us. We blame our parents. We blame those people. We blame the man. Often the last person that we blame is ourselves. And there are real external problems in the world. You know, we're right to be disturbed by the injustice and oppression we see. People mistreat us and others, and that does affect us, sometimes in profound ways. But the Bible says, as big as those problems are, and they are big, we have an even bigger problem. And all those other problems stem from this one great problem. Our greatest oppression isn't outside of ourselves. Our greatest oppression is the oppression of our own sin. We like to identify ourselves with oppressed Israel in this story, and that's legitimate. But we're also a lot more like Pharaoh than we like to believe. You know, how do you act when you feel threatened by the success of a coworker or, uh, you know, a friend or a family member? How do you act when your job is on the line? What do you do with your power, your influence? Is your driving ambition to serve others? If you manage employees, or if you're a father or a mother, or, or maybe an older brother or an older sister, how do you use that influence? Maybe you say, oh, I don't have any power. Then how do you spend your time and your money? There's a verse in Philippians, uh, verse four, chapter two, verse four, it says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. I know that's not always my first impulse. Like Pharaoh, we often think only about our own interests and we'll do whatever it takes to get what we want. You know, the difference between Pharaoh and ourselves is really only a difference of degree. We have the same desire to get what we want at the expense of others. And that's sin. That goes against who God is. And the Bible talks about sin as slavery. We're slaves to sin in that we're controlled by sin. We're unable to resist sin. Do you feel like that sometimes? Like you don't want to do that sin again, but the temptation comes and you just feel powerless. Sin is a slavery 
and it leads to death. Because we have sinned against God, we don't deserve, or we deserve the same judgment as Pharaoh. We don't deserve to be blessed by the now. We deserve to be cast into the judgment of God. Some believe that with enough research, we can solve the problem of death. If you turn to the first page of your bulletin, there's another quote um, from that same New Yorker article all the way at the bottom. Let me read it for you. It says, Bill Maris, who conceived of Calico, said that when he pondered the inevitability of death, I felt there was maybe our mission here to transcend that and to preserve consciousness indefinitely. But the Bible tells us the reason for death. We can extend lifespans, but science will never be able to conquer death because death is not primarily a scientific problem. Death is a spiritual problem. Death exists because sin exists. Before there was sin, there was no death. Deliverance from death requires a spiritual solution. And this isn't something that we can do ourselves. Our souls are captive to death because our own sin condemns us. We're not the solution. We're the problem. Moses delivered God's people from slavery in Egypt. And the story is meant to teach us that God is a deliverer. He is able to deliver and he desires to deliver. But Israel needed more than Moses. We need more than Moses. Because see, we can be free from oppression, free from violence, free from abuse, living in a penthouse in New York City, but we still won't be truly free until we're freed from our slavery to sin. The story of Moses prepares us for another very similar story in Matthew 2. 1,500 years after Moses, an angel appears to a woman in Israel named Mary and tells her that she will give birth to a son by the Holy Spirit, and he will be called the Son of God. As the fulfillment of prophecy, he will be king over his people, and his kingdom will never end. Moses was the son of Israel who became a son of Egypt. This is the son of God who became a son of man. And after the son was born, Herod, who was king of the Jews of the time, uh, heard about this king. And like Pharaoh, he felt threatened. He didn't want someone taking his throne, so he sought to kill the child. And like Moses, sat helplessly in the ark while the Egyptians sought to kill him. So this son was born in a barn and placed in a manger. God thwarts Herod's first attempt to kill the son, and so Herod orders every male child in the region to be killed. Sound familiar? He slaughters his own people. But God warned this new son's parents in a dream and they escaped and fled to Egypt. Once again, God protected his deliverer. But this deliverer would do something even greater than Moses. He wouldn't just save his people from Herod. When Mary conceived, an angel said to Joseph, her fiance, Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, 
for he will save his people from their sins. Like Moses, God protects this deliverer when he was a child. And God continues to protect him. When Jesus was older, he began and began to teach. Many tried to kill or arrest him. But we read this. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. But then his hour did come. And in order for Jesus to save God's people from their slavery to sin, he had to endure the judgment that sin deserves. And so, unlike Moses, Jesus delivered God's people not by marching out of Egypt, but by dying on a cross for their sins. King Herod slaughters his own people. King Jesus was slaughtered by his own people for his own people. But this deliverer is not like the rest of us. The psalm asks, what man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? But another psalm gives an answer. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Psalm 16. On the third day, Jesus rose from the dead, proving that he could deliver even from death. That's the freedom only God can bring. As Christians, we know that we can't solve the problem of death. But as Christians, we know the one who has solved the problem of death. Because of him, we too can say with the psalmist, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. If we have faith in Christ, we are freed from our slavery to sin and delivered from the power of death, truly free. The echoes of creation in the birth of Moses have been fulfilled in the church. 2 Corinthians 5 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. We still struggle with sin in this life, but God is at work in us, freeing us more and more. And he promises that he will finish the work that he started. When you feel enslaved to sin, cry out to him, for he has freed you. And like Israel was freed from their slavery for a particular purpose, so are we. The Lord said to Pharaoh, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. Likewise, we are freed from our slavery to sin that we might serve Christ. So rather than keep fighting to keep our our power, our influence, let us use what influence God has given us to serve others. Let us use our time, our money, our skills, not to serve ourselves at the expense of others. That's the way of Pharaoh, the way of Herod. Instead, like Christ, let us serve others at the expense of ourselves. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't rest or exercise or eat healthy or even enjoy the blessings that God has given us. But instead of asking, how much do I need to serve others? What if you asked, how much more can I serve others? 
What can you do this week to bless someone in this community? What about a coworker? What about a stranger? How can you serve God through your work this week? Maybe that means standing up for what's right, even if it costs you, fearing God more than man. Christ has delivered us from our greatest oppression. And one day he will deliver us from all our other oppressions as well. If we have faith in Christ and we look forward to the day when our, our good, our loving, and selfless king will reign fully, there will be no more injustice, no more suffering, no more oppression, and no more death. We will live in peace with God. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Christ delivers. Let's pray.